for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at First Alliance, and uh, I'll be sharing with you this morning uh, from God's Word. Uh, pastor Mark will be rejoining us for Easter next Sunday, and we, we look forward to that. So if you have your Bibles, I invo- invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Uh, we will be in verses 28 through 44. Once again, that's Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. What I would like to do is uh, read our text this morning and then pray and then dive in as we study God's word together. Luke 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Dear Heavenly Father, now as we worship you through the study of your word, I pray that you would make it clear to us, Lord. I pray, Father, that this would permeate our hearts. Lord, you have told us that your word is alive. And we know that it's alive, Father. So we pray, Lord, that it would impact us, teach us, move in us. Leave us not the same, Father. And in your holy name I pray, amen. On uh, January 2nd of this year, a fight broke out in a popular movie theater just outside of Cleveland. This was one of my favorite movie theaters uh, that I would go to regularly. Uh, But on this particular night, a fight broke out among teenagers Um, And one thing led to another. I don't know what the fight was about, but uh, the fight sparked other fights in the movie theater, in the the lobby. And by 9.30 p.m., the theater ended up having to call uh, the police. And by the time police arrived to try and calm um, this, this crowd down, they say that up to 300 teenagers, up to 300 teenagers were rioting in the lobby of this movie theater. Eventually, the, the, the police 
um, got them outside, but it was so severe and so serious that restaurants in the, in the neighboring areas were contacted and told to lock your doors um, so that no damage would be done inside the restaurant. You, you may have read this on the news. It took 10 different police stations to settle this crowd of teenagers down. And I'm a youth pastor. <laughs> this is something that, these are the kind of people that I hang out with. It, if there's anything we can learn from this story, it's never underestimate the power of people in large groups. Never underestimate the power of people in large groups. What we've just read in Scripture, although a peaceful event, was a very tense event. It, it had the recipe for disaster. It had the recipe for disaster. On the surface, as you read this, it may have seemed like a glorious day. It may have seemed like a time of celebration. However, if we take a closer look, we'll see that there were a series of events that led up to this that were very, that, that built tension, that built tension. And so I want to share with you in more detail um, so that you understand that tension. You can understand why this is such a tense event. And so thankfully uh, to, to the Gospel of John, we actually have a detailed account of what Jesus went through before this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, we start with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. His friend Lazarus had died. And Jesus was too late getting there. And Lazarus had been dead for four days. And Jesus goes and it says that he weeps at his grave. And he, and he felt moved. And so they, he, tells, he tells people to roll away the stone. And then he calls into the tomb saying, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. He's still, he's still wrapped in his burial clothing. His cloths are still around his face. But he walks out. Jesus raises Lazarus. Now, now, people saw this. They actually witnessed this. And then they started telling their friends, this Jesus guy, this guy Lazarus, he was dead. For four days he was dead. And then Jesus spoke to him. He just, like he was having a conversation with him. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. And you wouldn't believe it. Lazarus walked out of the grave. I know this guy was dead, and now I've seen him alive. And so because of this, Jesus started to gain many followers. Many people saw this and said, I think there's something more to this Jesus. I think this is the Messiah. This is, this is our Savior because of these miracles that he's done. And um, there were other miracles that he did that uh, people were amazed by. But this one was like the, the capstone. This was the one to top it all off. And so many people start talking about Jesus so much so that the Jewish leaders get nervous. The Jewish leaders get nervous. And this is why they were nervous. At this point in Israelite history, the, the Israelites were occupied, uh, the, the Romans were occupying Israel. And the Jewish leaders had a very nice, just a nice relationship with the Romans that if they kept their position of authority, the Romans could occupy and so they were afraid. They were afraid of the Romans coming in, basically. They were afraid of Jesus inciting some kind of a rebellion, and then the Romans just wiping their nation off the planet. Essentially, the Jewish leaders, they didn't want to rock the boat. They, they wanted things to stay exactly as they were, nice and neat. And so they plot to kill Jesus. They, they actually issue what would be kind of like an arrest warrant. 
They put out a message and say, if there's anybody, if there's anybody who knows any information about this Jesus guy, turn him in. Turn him in. And so in light of this, Jesus stayed away from the public eye for a while. He actually retreated um, to the village of Ephraim. It's, it's near the desert. He lays low for a time. He doesn't appear in public anymore after this. And so Passover ends up rolling around. And now Passover was one of three what we would call pilgrimage festivals for the Israelites. The Jewish people were commanded to have a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during Passover and two other uh, festivals that they would have year-round. And so as the Jewish people congregated, there were several of them that were kind of waiting at the gates wondering, well, is Jesus going to show up? Is, is Jesus coming? They were looking for Jesus. And here's Jesus' dilemma. He's Jewish. He needs to go to Jerusalem. But if he shows his face in public, the Jewish leaders are going to come after him. And so they're wondering... Is he going to show? Is that guy going to show his face? Tension. Tension. Time goes by. Passover rolls around. Um, Jesus appears or shows up in Bethany again, the same town that uh, Lazarus was hanging out in. It, where Lazarus lived is where he, rose, uh, where he raised Lazarus. Um, and they throw a feast in honor of Jesus. And so they're only about two miles outside of Jerusalem. They're throwing a feast for Jesus, and people start talking. Hey, Jesus, he's at Lazarus' house. Let's, let's, go, let's go see him. Let's go check it out. And all of a sudden, a bunch of people kind of just congregate into Bethany. And the next day is when this triumphal entry happens. So these crowds gather, and he makes this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And this is where we come to our text. Now, this trek that Jesus would make, this, this uh, walk from Bethany to Jerusalem, just under two miles, this was a very, very familiar route for Jesus. Because of those festivals that I had talked about earlier, Jesus would have made this trek no less than three times a year since he was probably 12 years old. He was familiar with this. He was familiar with this. Um, however, this time it's different. This time there's something different. When uh, my wife and I moved uh, from Ohio over here, we, we had built a house in Ohio. We lived there about four years. Um, and, and the last time we were in our house, we did a walkthrough. We did one more walkthrough. We spent a little bit of time in each room. These, rooms. these rooms were rooms that I had been in hundreds of times. These were stairs that I climbed every single night. These were floors that I would roll around and play with my daughter and play with my dog. These, this was familiar space to me. But when we did our last walkthrough, it was much more sober-minded. It was much more emotional. It was much more serious. Because I knew this is the last time that I'll probably ever set foot in this house. And the same is true for Jesus as he makes this trek into Jerusalem. There is something different. Because Jesus knows this is the last time that I journey to Jerusalem before I die. This is the last time that I walk these steps or I make my way through this path that I die. This time... He's not coming as a worshiper. He's coming as a king to claim his throne. And our text can be broken down into four distinct sections. 
Don't think about this as like points to the sermon. Think of it more as like plotting points on a road map to help you in our study. And, and I've just given these names. There's nothing special about them. But in verses 28 through 35, we can see humble transportation. Verses 36 through 38, we see messianic praise. 39 and 40, we see adamant opposition. And 41 through 44, we see a lament for Jerusalem. And we know right away that this journey into Jerusalem is different because of Jesus' choice of transportation, or that he even had a choice of transportation. To this point, Jesus probably would have walked this trek. He would have walked this path. But this time, he makes a king's entrance. What does it say? Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, Uh, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt or a donkey tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, in this time frame, if you were a king, you were a ruler, you were there by force. You were there by asserting your power and asserting your authority. You took your kingship by force. And so what would happen is we would have conquering kings going to a foreign land and conquering, and then they would ride back on their war horse, their royal steed, and there would be celebrations. There would be parades, and people would line the streets, and they would all shout and cheer as the conquering king passed by. In a a sense, it's much similar to what like our inauguration day would look like here in America. The day that the president is vowed into office, there's parades, there's celebrations because we've conquered the election and it's time to claim our our seat on the the throne that is the White House. And so, and so they line it up with street, uh, line the streets with uh, people in parades and they come riding in in celebration. Christ here, is coming in to claim his spot on the throne. And so he needs his royal steed, a donkey. His royal steed, a donkey. As we'll see later, the entry would contain several elements of a king's parade except for this one detail. He comes riding in on a humble donkey. A donkey with an owner that isn't even named. A simple Ordinary donkey. This would be the equivalent of, let's say, at the last presidential inauguration, um, I lived in Ohio, and I drove a 2004 Ford Taurus. This thing was a rust bucket, and it was leaking, it was leaking liquids all over the place. You couldn't even sit in the car without getting something on you. That's how, like, that, that's how well I treated this thing, right? This would be the equivalent of When the inauguration parade comes along, the President of the United States says, Hey, go get that rusty old Ford Taurus from that dude in Ohio and bring it back to me because I want to ride this thing in on the parade. I want to ride this baby in on the parade. That's, That's what this looks like. That's what this picture is. Kings deserved to ride on distinguished forms of transportation. But Jesus comes in on a donkey, a symbol of peace and a symbol of humility. The disciples themselves thought this was a little strange, but they thought, well, Jesus does a lot of weird stuff, so we'll just let him have this. 
It would be later portrayed in his trial. Think about it. Jesus came and willingly gave himself over to authorities. He willingly went over to the cross. He didn't defend himself. In fact, when they came to arrest Jesus, what happened? Peter, one of his disciples, drew a sword and cut the ear off of one of the servants that was with them. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't sit there and say, let's go, let's go at him, let's have at it. No, he said, Peter, Peter, put your sword away. What, what are you doing? Come on, Peter. Just, all right, calm down. Calm down now. We don't need any of that. We don't need any of that. Despite his arrest warrant, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem peacefully and humbly. And notice how he does it. If Jesus didn't want to cause any trouble, if he didn't want to make an uproar, it would be very easy for him to enter the city secretly, kind of slip in among the masses. Once people started congregating, he could have said, hey, just calm down, okay? They're going to try and arrest me. They're going to try and kill me. Just, just calm down. Don't make a big fuss about this. But he doesn't. He makes a very public entrance, despite the fact that there's Jewish leaders that want to kill this man. And so although he comes in peace, and he comes in humility, he comes publicly. He says, here I am. And the people love it. Verses 36 through 38, they start shouting messianic praise. What does it say? says this, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, something they would do for kings. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now to understand what's going on, once again, to this point, we, we, we gotta understand, Israel has been occupied by a foreign power for about 500 years. Okay, it wasn't always the Romans, but they have been occupied by a foreign power for about 500 years, with the exception of like a decade in the first century BC. So they were ready for a Messiah. They were ready for the glorious day that someone would come in and save their nation and they wouldn't be ruled over. So when they shout out this praise, when they're calling him the Messiah, in other passages, uh, in other accounts, they say, Hosanna, save us, save us. When they say this, they know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what they're calling Jesus. They know exactly that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. It was no mistake that they were calling him their Savior. However, they didn't know what he was going to save them from. They were wrong about what he was to save them from. And we'll get that, to that in a bit. But they didn't really recognize him for who he really was. They merely wanted a political savior, a military savior, someone to come in and kick the Romans out. They were going to be saved from so much more. And not everybody is thrilled about what's going on here. And we come up to adamant opposition in verse 39 and 40, Pharisees approach him and they urge him. They urge him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. And they probably did this for two reasons. First, they probably wanted him to calm the crowd down. 
Once again, they were scared of the Romans. They were scared of rocking the boat. They were scared of unrest. Any uh, religious leader at the time would have been adamantly opposed to any event that would uh, incite or provoke Roman intervention. So they're probably saying, Jesus, you you got to calm them down. If you go into the city like this, the Romans are going to get involved. And and we're going to lose. There's, there's a problem. It's just calm down. The second reason they probably did this is because they probably disagreed with the crowds. They think you're the Savior? You're the Messiah? Last I saw, you were having dinner with sinners over here. You're not the Savior. You're not the Messiah. Who do you think you are? I don't know if you've ever been in an argument, but there's several times um, where if I'm talking with somebody and I disagree with them, I love to come out with a good comeback. I love to have a really good comeback. Because if i got a good enough comeback, that'll just keep them quiet, right? Jesus has a real zinger of a comeback here. This is what he says. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If they keep quiet, the rocks will cry out to me. And I think there's really two implications of him saying this that are in direct um, response to what the Pharisees were saying. Two implications. The first one is this. You can't silence the praise of God. You can't silence the praise of his word and his will. People have tried. You don't have to turn very far to see in Acts 7. We have Stephen, a follower of Christ, sharing the gospel message. And once again, the Jewish leaders didn't like it. And so what do they do? What's their solution? They kill him. They kill him. They kill him to silence him. They kill him to snuff out the gospel message. Acts 8, persecution breaks out and it scatters Christians all over the known world, thus promoting the spreading of the gospel. They tried to silence Stephen. They tried to silence God's word. They tried to silence the worship and the praise of God and it only grew louder. You cannot silence God's word. You cannot silence his praise. I can't help but think about the 21 Christians that were killed just over a month ago by the terrorist group ISIS. Why did they do it? To silence the praise of God. ISIS could kill every single Christian on the face of the planet, and Jesus would still be on the throne. They could wipe out all Christians, and Jesus would be there. Why? Jesus would still be on the throne, and creation itself would praise him. Creation itself would praise him. All this to say, God doesn't need us to praise him. The rocks will do it for us. You can't silence the praise of God. The second implication. Jesus might have said, you don't don't believe them? You don't believe that I'm the Messiah? The inanimate objects that surround you know me more than you know me. These rocks, 
know me better than you know me. You're, you're wrong. You're wrong. When Jesus says this, he is not only affirming what they're saying, but he is actually taking it to the next level. Not only do they praise me, creation praises me because I created it. To this point, messianic claims in public have generally been made on his behalf. There were moments where people would affirm who Jesus was and he would say, just keep quiet for now. My time has not yet come. But now they're affirming him and he is affirming them by not silencing them. He's basically saying, here it is. The time's come. Here I am. But Jesus doesn't get caught up in the moment. I could imagine that there would be a temptation here. It would be easy with thousands of people at your back praising you. It would be easy to say, yeah, they love me. I'm, I'm their guy. I'm, I'm it. I'm the real deal. They're on my side. Let's go. It'd be easy for Jesus to do that, but he doesn't get caught up in the moment. He doesn't get lost in the cheering while everybody's praising his name. In a moment, we see that he zones all of that out, and as he's coming down, he looks over Jerusalem. And not only Jerusalem, but the nation of Israel, because they were all there for Passover. He looks over the nation of Israel. And what does he do? He weeps. He weeps. What does it say, verse 41? As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. He said, If you would actually know what would bring you peace, if you actually knew what would bring you peace, you have failed to see peace right in front of your eyes. You think a military leader would bring you peace? You think a warrior king would bring you peace? You're wrong. And he goes on and he explains that not only am I not going to save you the way you think I am, but there's more persecution to come. And he talks about Israel falling to an embankment to people hemming them in and there won't be a single stone on top of each other left. And 40 years later, after Jesus says these words about 70 AD, the Romans do come in and they destroy everything. And there's not a trace left of the temple. And to this day, there's not a trace left. The temple isn't there anymore because the Romans come in and destroy it. Jesus is saying, if you knew what would bring you peace, if only you knew what was coming to you because you didn't recognize me. Like a mother or a father weeps for their children. Have you ever wept for someone? I'm not talking just a few tears shed. I'm talking intense sobbing. Jesus didn't just shed tears. It was intense sobbing for Jerusalem. As a mother or a father, have you ever looked at your child and say, if only you knew the destruction that was coming to you. If only knew that the decisions that you're making now are leading you down a path of destruction. If only you knew. 
and you weep and you show compassion. Jesus weeps for his people because he is an unrecognized Savior. They do not recognize him. They assume that this was as good as it gets. But of course, they were wrong. Their misguided expectations of how God was supposed to work made them think that this was a glorious day. But in fact, it was a very sad day because they didn't recognize their own Savior. In Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, it says that once Jesus went into the village, some people saw the thousands of people that were praising him. And they asked one question. They asked, who is this? What's all this commotion about? Who is this? Who is this? They didn't recognize him. It echoes John 1.10. He was in the world. Jesus was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Though the world was made through him, the world does not recognize him. The world did not recognize him. The most important question that we can ask ourselves sitting here right now is, who is this? Who is this man? Who is this man who claimed to be God? And sometimes we answer the question not with truth, but who we want Jesus to be. In 1803, Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, conceived of, uh, conceived of an idea of writing his view of what he called the, Christ, uh, the Christian system. And so what he did is he took his Bible and he took a razor blade and he cut out portions of Scripture. Any Scripture that mentioned his deity, that mentioned Christ's deity, any uh, Scripture that mentioned him doing miracles, Thomas Jefferson just cut that out with a razor blade, threw it out. And then he didn't like how the order was on some of them, so he, he, he would take certain parts and cut it out and paste it on other places. He had a cut and paste Jesus, literally. And it might sound ridiculous, but don't we do that in our hearts sometimes? Don't we have a cut and paste Jesus sometimes? You say, I want to pick and choose who my Jesus is. I like what he says over here, but I don't like what he says over here. So I'm, I'm just going to get rid of that. I'm just, I'm just going to disregard that. We say, based on my experiences, based on my feelings, based on my own meandering thoughts, this is who I think Jesus is. And before you know it, we start sounding like the six blind men and the elephant that Pastor Scott was talking about last week. If you weren't here, I'll refresh the story. It's a popular story. You may have heard it. You have six blind men all observing an elephant. One man is touching the tail and he says, this is a rope. Another man is touching the side of the elephant. This is a wall. Another of the blind men is touching the the trunk, saying, this is a tree. And they say, it's okay. It's okay if we look at Jesus because this is all of our different perspectives. Why can't I have a different perspective of what Christ is, of what who Jesus is, and you can have your perspective, and we can just live in harmony, and that's okay. People use this story to support this idea of pluralism towards God and Jesus. They say it's okay to have a cut-and-paste version of Jesus because you're just observing it from your point of view. That's okay, isn't it? A few years ago, I attended a conference, and the pastor used this in his sermon, but he, he had one question for us that shattered this ideology. And this is what he asked. 
What if the elephant speaks? What if the elephant talks? One blind man says, I think it's a rope. And the elephant says, nope, I'm an elephant. One blind man feels the side of the wall, or the side of the elephant. He says, I think it's a wall. Nope, still an elephant. Somebody feels the trunk. It's a tree. Wrong again. I'm still an elephant. How do we know? How do we know who Jesus is? How do we know? Because God has spoken. God has spoken in his word and he has told us exactly who Jesus is and why he came. God has spoken. And this is what he came to do. He came to die in our place so that we may have life. Jesus wept for the city because they didn't recognize what would bring them peace. The only thing that would bring them ultimate peace would be to recognize who he is based on his word and submit themselves to him and following his command. There will never be anything that you can attain that will bring you that ultimate peace that you so long and desire for. There is nothing that you can ever accomplish that will ever bring you that ultimate peace that you so long and desire for. There is nothing you can do that will ever bring you that ultimate peace that you so long and desire for, except turning to Jesus and submitting to him and following him. Because we were meant to be in a relationship with God. That's how he designed us. But because of what we've done, because of our sin, we have broken that relationship. And ever since then, we have tried and tried and tried to figure out how to restore our relationship with God. And God said, you can't do it. So I'm going to send somebody to do it for you. And his name is Jesus. And he's going to save you from so much more than what you think is peace. He will give you that peace. And he will restore your relationship with me just as it was originally designed. Do you know him? Do you recognize him? I end with this final note. The first time Jesus came, he came as a savior. And he came with grace and mercy. The next time he comes, though, he will be riding on something other than a donkey. This is what Revelation 19, 11 through 16 says. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has his name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and his thigh he has the name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. The next day, 
or the next time that Jesus comes, he will be riding on a war horse to wage war on all evil, every bit of evil that has ever happened. And he'll win. And he'll conquer. Will you on that day be standing there asking the question, who is this? Who is this?